actually just wanted to say how much I am appreciating everything that everyone is bringing to the practice. Uh, this feels like a lot of uh, sincerity and dedication and honesty and integrity and I just am feeling uh, touched by that. Uh, the theme I'd like to explore tonight is the self and its search for security. So one of the sort of most seemingly obvious and basic facts of existence is the sense of self. That we feel that here I am somehow, I am here and others are there, but I am here, the sense of self. And with that sense of self, as I just said, there comes the sense of other. And this sense of self feels itself to experience pleasure and pain and lovely things and difficult things and feels in a way vulnerable to all of that and all the movement in all of that, the unknown in all of that, the shifting in all of that, what is pleasurable may become painful, tomorrow may be painful, and at the end of it all seems death. And when the self seems real and solid, All that seems real and solid. Death seems real and solid. And so the self feels vulnerable. And it's almost, you could say, its nature almost is is a tendency to self-preoccupation in the field of all that. And we talked yesterday about the default kind of sense of self, not that it's always that way, but the default sense is a kind of center of acquisition within all this pleasure and pain and what can I get. And so, quite understandably and normally, this self looks for a sense of security. It looks at at a very deep level, uh, looks for a sense of security. And this has enormous significances for us as human beings and for us as practitioners. This is what I want to explore. Some of you, I don't know, maybe you may be familiar with the writings of David Loy. He's written some quite interesting books recently. He's a a professor of something or other and a Zen teacher. And he looks at it a certain way, which is that Actually, the self has no real existence, and we sort of know that. And so we feel kind of groundless. We feel very unsure in ourselves, because it's actually something that doesn't really exist. This groundlessness makes us feel uncomfortable. And out of that discomfort, we seek a kind of ground and seek to kind of substantialize the self. And uh, he points to a few ways that we do that. He talks about money, uh, fame, romantic love and power as sort of four main uh, ways that the modern self looks to substantialize itself. 
I'm not sure that I totally agree with that way round of seeing it, but that, that's fine, it doesn't matter too much. Um, for me, actually, the sense of self is part of what the Buddha would call the fundamental delusion. We actually do have a solid sense of self, and from that, taking ourselves to be real, then we, as I was saying last night at one point, we see the world from that, and we act and we choose in the world from that place of this seeming real, and that has certain cons- consequences. But anyway, these four things that he points to are quite interesting for us as modern modern, uh, human beings. So we use these four, uh, among other things, we use these four for to try and get a sense of security. None of them are bad in themselves. There's nothing wrong with money, there's nothing wrong with fame or power even, or certainly not romantic love. Nothing wrong with them in themselves. It's just that somehow the self in its delusion looks at them in a certain way. And uses them in an unskillful way. So I don't have time to go into all of them. I just want to talk about one, and actually that one is money. Now, of course, this relates very much to parts of what I was talking about yesterday with generosity, and partly the reason I'm choosing that is because we talk about it very little in Dharma circles, but also, just personally, I've become very interested in money in the last few years, um, just for for myself, but also in terms of the the credit crunch and all that, and what's kind of going on in this collective, um, I don't know, insanity. Um, Concern, collective concern. Uh, So, the way we are with money, and what's that got to do with the self and its search for security? And this, to me, this doesn't apply just to a certain segment. Like, I may feel myself to be rich, I may be perceived by others to be rich, I may feel myself to be poor, or be perceived by others to be poor. In a way, it, it, it covers all of that. And... Money, money is very interesting for all, almost everyone. I would say it's it's some it's something that's very challenging, even if it doesn't seem so obviously at an obvious level. So, as part of our modern human experience, it's one of the challenges. It's 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 a real uh, challenging and demanding aspect of our experience. And in a way, our relationship to money. It's part of what sets our course as a human being. It's part of what sets our course. How we are with money at a certain level says a lot. It indicates a lot and it creates a lot in terms of our course. So money, and again, whether we think it's a big deal or not, it's, it, has, it has become something that hooks and seduces us very easily. And to me it's a fascinating area. It's an area that can be one where we are hooked and seduced and kind of wrestling with difficulties and problems in relationship to it, not a free relationship. But it can also become an area that's actually a a tool and an ally in our our growth, in our transformation, in our movement towards freedom. That, That very thing itself. 
Um, so I read a, a beautiful book recently called The Soul of Money by Lynn Twist. And I'll actually come back to her, but just to read a quote from that. She says, Money travels everywhere, crosses all boundaries, languages, and culture. I, may, I actually slightly rewrote her, so if she listens to this and gets offended. but um. <laughs> Money, like water, ripples at some level through every life and place. It can carry our love or our fear. It can flood some of us such that we drown in it or are slowly, almost imperceptibly poisoned by its accumulation or hoarding. It can nourish and water the principles of freedom, community and sharing. Money can be used to affirm life or it can be used to demean, diminish and destroy it. And when we think about our relationship with money, it's actually possible that, that we get into different kinds of problems with money. And again, we may be aware of this, we may be less aware of it. So I'm not just talking at a crass level, someone rolls up in their Rolls Royce with a cigar, and etc. I'm, I'm not just talking about that, the kind of um, uh, money as a tool to impress others. Whoever I can't quite see at the back. Would you mind t- turning the lights up a little bit? Because I actually can't see my notes. Thanks. That's great. And and there's one more. Yeah. Great. Thank you. That's better. Thanks a lot. Uh, so at a crass level, imp- impressing other people, pre- the prestige of being rich, etc., or seeming to be rich. That's one very crass level, but it gets a lot subtler than that. It's interesting, we work, and we work for money, and how easily money becomes a measure of respect. I put my effort into something, I put my time, my energy into something, and I get given a certain amount. And in a way, that gets taken as a measure of what my myself is worth, or my, my dedication is worth, my skills are worth, my, my effort is worth. And that's, that's subtler. Because we, it, we react to that at, at a different level. And I'm not saying it's bad to want to be respected, but it's just that's one of the ways that money is a little more subtly uh, gets problematic it's not that we want a lot of money it's just that we want to be feel like we're being respected for what we put forth in the world or respected appropriately for what we feel it's worth money can be tied up with security in the future and what will happen to me in the future and how will i be and will i be okay and of course a safety cushion for that and you know um, if one is a parent and someone said, a number of people said to me, you know, I feel bad if I can't put my son through college. I feel like I'm not, I'm not fully a man. So it gets very loaded with all kinds of other uh, burdens in a way. And people have said to me as well, it's a survival fear. My, I think I touched on this last night. My relationship with money, I, I have fear around that. And it, it has to do with my very survival as a human being. And as well, I've heard, and unfortunately often from people who've done a lot of practice, uh, now I'm practicing taking care of myself. 
And so I have a different relationship to money and, and the accumulation of money. Or perhaps I've done renunciation. I went to India in the 70s and I, I did a retreat there. <laughs> and now I'm, now I'm into worldly is the same as spiritual. <laughs> and more. I'm just outlining some more. Most of us will have something that's not quite fully open and conscious and free in relationship to money. And so you might be hearing this and think, say, well, I don't have any anyway, so it doesn't, it doesn't really relate to me. Yes, it does. Or, or you might think, I don't really have a problem with money. I'm pretty okay with it. I, I think there's more to it than that. So again, like yesterday, I don't want to be in a position of preaching. I don't actually feel in a position of preaching. I, I, I would rather offer something for all of us, for our reflection. I read a, a sociological study. It said 1961 was the last year in uh, America and England that having more stuff uh, corresponded with being more happy. 1961. And actually, since then, the economic growth, growth curve has been completely mirrored and uh, shadowed by the rise in depression, etc. And uh, uh, indicators of a lack of well-being. The word wealthy comes from the old English word wheel, W-E-A-L. And that means well-being. It's an old English word for well-being. And yet somehow, somehow they've sort of parted ways, and, but in, in, in the mind it's, it hasn't. And, and money has sometimes, sometimes come to mean something kind of in itself, almost more than anything else. So it was interesting, I can't remember when it came out, I think it was either 2007 or 2008, uh, perhaps you remember, the Stearns Report, now, I don't know, I could be wrong here, but it seemed to me that the British government's relationship with climate change was kind of, don't want to deal with it as an issue. The Stearns report came out basically saying that if we don't get it together with climate change, it will cost the British economy, and there was some astronomical figure. And then suddenly there was this U-turn. That's how it, I don't know, that's how it seemed to me. And that what ended up being more important than anything else, even than the very planet that gives us oxygen, that gives us food, was actually the cost to the economy. What has that come to mean? So again, I don't want to bombard you with figures and things, but 265 billion dollars was spent on preparing for the Y2K bug. Do you even remember this? <laughs> do you even remember? Do you remember all the fuss? Some of you are too young, maybe, I don't know. $265 billion was spent on the Y2K, but we didn't even know, apparently, we didn't even know if it was going to happen. It was just, we, we better really make sure that it doesn't happen. Uh, we know about climate change. We know about the, the basically, environmental de- devastation that's already begun, already taking place. And the UN Environmental Programme Annual Budget 2008... 190 million compared to 265 billion. Last James Bond movie, 205 million. Oh, it looks really good. 
I heard, I heard it was complete crap. <laughs> but, uh, I'll talk to you later, Michael. <laughs> um, um, <laughs> a little more. I'm, I'm partly saying these figures to kind of, it's like, this is the climate, the environment that we are in the middle of. It's almost like the air we breathe in terms of assumptions and of what's important because of what gets invested in, etc. And as, as such, we're absorbing that message and that attitude all the time, all the time. And I think it's, it's important to really realize that and, and kind of wake up to something. So early 2008... 7.1 billion pounds pledged to the poor worldwide because of, the, if you remember, the rising food prices. And there was an increase in world hunger. And about 1 billion people in the world uh, do not have enough to eat to sustain basic health. Basic sort of, you know, that they have enough health in the body. That's one in six people. So 7.1 billion pledged at the beginning of the year. By the end of the year, only 580 million was dispersed, had been dispersed. The UN anyway had estimated that it would cost about between 15 and 28 billion. So even then the pledges were way short. When the financial crisis came around, more than in excess of 1,160 billion pounds was uh, dispersed in a few weeks. The UN Secretary said he found it embarrassing that the developed world worries about recession while many in the world don't even have enough to eat. So what's going on here that makes one thing more important than another? And it's in all the headlines and it takes up... and, and, And people buy in, we buy into it. So this quote I, was, I gave before from Lynn Twist, she's, um, she wrote this book called The Soul of Money. I found it a beautiful book. She's a long-term, I think for 35 years more, 40 years, she's been uh, an international fundraiser for different organizations and primarily something called The Hunger Project, but lots of other projects too. And she, in her work, meets the poorest poor people all over the world, uh, in both in developed countries and in, in developing countries. And... Um, and also uh, the, the richest of the rich, you know, asking them for money. And she kind of looks at the whole relationship with money in this book, and she pinpoints uh, what she calls three myths in relationship to money. And one is the myth of scarcity, the, what she calls the myth of scarcity, the feeling, the assumption, almost unconscious, that there isn't enough, and it doesn't just go for money. But one of the things she points to is that in her travels, in all, all these totally different strata of, of different societies, she says that she sees it also in individuals with excess amounts of money, and actually sometimes vastly excess amounts of money, and in most cultures. And she says it's a feeling that doesn't necessarily seem to be rooted in fact. I was also, I was at another, I don't think I'll have time tonight, but I wanted to tell you about this whole other uh, day-long thing that I did, and we played this big game of Monopoly, and it was actually complete with different rules, and it was fascinating. But anyway, 
after afterwards the person who was leading it was uh, telling he also does work with kind of CEOs and quite of big organizations and rich people and he he was reflecting on the fact that the people who will just give a thousand dollars to help something are not necessarily richer than the people who don't give a thousand dollars there's something interesting going on it's more in the mind and then reflecting what actual difference does it make if a thousand dollars goes from the bank account now for some people in here even I know it will make a huge difference but for a lot of people it doesn't actually make that much difference the figures go down but it's actually money that's not really doing anything what actual difference will it make and yet and yet we don't often we don't so money and fear are very closely related and I touched on this again last night but there's something more about this we make choices in life we make a lot of choices every day and a lot of the choices we're not totally aware where they're coming from and a lot of them unfortunately are coming from a level of fear that we're not even conscious of as fear and particularly around money we're not even conscious of fear that might be okay but the problem is it has consequences when i choose out of fear and i choose out of fear and i keep choosing out of fear i'm reinforcing fear and i'm strangling other uh, possibilities in my being also in life but in my being primarily and i because it's kind of unconscious and it doesn't seem a big deal and everyone else is doing it i don't notice the consequences they don't register the consequences of repeatedly making those kind of choices from that level i don't know if you saw al gore's film an inconvenient truth and he was talking about um what was it if you if you put a frog in in a in a glass of boiling water i don't know why anyone would do this but if you put a frog in a glass of boiling water it will jump straight out if you put a frog in a glass of cold water and heat it up slowly it will just sit there until it dies or it's rescued is a similar thing with a lot of the choices we make in life we don't bear sometimes we don't even realize we're making choices and and a whole other we don't even realize where they're coming from what level of the being and what what direction of intention they're coming from and and in a way it goes back to the opening talk so much of our life depends on that and and we barely see it so is it possible to move is it possible to move from an outlook of scarcity and actually to investigate this do i even have that because it might not ring a bell but we need to look at this we need to look at this quite deeply can i move from an outlook of scarcity to an outlook of sufficiency can i encourage a sense of sufficiency and that means reframing uh reframing my view of things with with a recognition for an appreciation of what we already have recognizing appreciating what we already have and we're doing that also in the meditation too and I'm talking about that a little bit through the days <coughs> so that in my life you know at one level we can speak there's a flow of resources material resources and different kinds of resources and money and instead of that being something i'm trying to kind of hold and build and stagnate and maybe it's eluding me or i perceive it as diminishing and i don't want it to diminish it's rather that i can perceive that perhaps i can shift that to perceiving a flow of nourishment rather than a flow of something i'm trying to grip onto 
and hold on to. A flow of nourishment moving through the life. It's a whole, I don't know, it might sound not that different, but it's a whole other way of seeing things. It's a whole other shift in the view. And from that perspective, if that's possible, then in a way we are, so to speak, privileged trustees for right now of these material resources, whatever they are, including money. Uh, To quote Lynn Twist, stewards rather than gatherers. Stewards of this. And able to choose what we use it for. And then the relationship with money becomes more an expression of possibility rather than an expression of fear. So there's, a, an, again, talking about a sense of abundance coming from affirming that we have enough, that there is enough, we have enough. And beginning to see that, and beginning to see it on lots of different levels in life. So one can see it at a very sort of basic, elemental level. We are supported by the air we breathe, supported by water, supported by food and light. And to actually acknowledge that and tune in, sometimes as a meditation, tune in to the way we're being nourished by that. Now, that may sound New Agean hippie, or I don't know. But, like I said yesterday, the other way of seeing, got to grab, got to hold, there isn't enough, wait, accumulate, what will happen? That's a madness, a folly from the perspective of awakening. It's crazy. So this author, Lynn Twist, this uh, fundraiser, Lynn Twist, she, uh, early in, I think it was the late 70s, early in her work, she um, often in the same day would move between, you know, seeing some extremely wealthy sort of CEO, uh, etc., and then going to uh, meet with very poor people. And something happened in New York, and she went, made this movement. And in the afternoon, she went to speak to a group of people in Harlem, in, in New York, in uh, a church basement. If you don't know, it's a very uh, poor area in New York. It's predominantly African-American. And uh, in the 70s, I imagine it was even even poorer than it is uh, even now. And and she was raising money for uh, for, uh, certain places in Africa that were suffering with hunger. And she said she was sitting in this church basement and obviously poor people in front of her, relatively speaking. And even the, the, the church itself was, um, they were in the basement and uh, it was raining outside and water was coming in through different places in the ceiling and there were buckets around trying to collect the water. And so she spoke about it and then she sort of made this request for money and she was really unsure whether it was the right thing to do. And she felt a, bit, a little bit uncomfortable. She was quite a novice back then. And she put it out and there was just silence. And then one woman called Gertrude, uh, it turns out, got up. And I just found this so beautiful, I just want to read it to you. And, and Gertrude got up and she said, uh, she said something like, I, I like you and I like what you're saying. And then she said, to me, money is a lot like water. For some folks, it rushes through their life like a raging river. Money comes through my life like a little trickle but I want to pass it on in a way that does the most good for the most folks. I see that as my right and my responsibility. It's also my joy. 
I ain't got no checkbook and I ain't got no credit cards. I have $50 in my purse that I earned from doing a white woman's wash and I want to give it to you. And she said, from that, and then people just started streaming up and giving. Very beautiful. The piece I also want to extract is this idea of flow that Gertrude spoke about. It's, it's, it's a, a flow. Money is a flow. And what sometimes happens in our relationship with money is that we think it shouldn't flow somehow. Money flows in and out and it should do that. That's what it's for in a way. And it's, we could say it's an honor, it's, uh, it's a, a beautiful thing, it's a privilege to be able to actually direct that flow toward, towards what one most deeply cares about, towards one's uh, highest commitments. That's something beautiful, that's a whole other relationship with money. That's what money, money is for. It doesn't mean neglecting those that are dependent on us or, or oneself. But the, actually the whole way we're seeing money is different. And she said in her work over the years, that shift, she sees it, and just as much as she sees the myth of scarcity, she sees that shift and that possibility even in the poorest people in the world. And talking, she, interestingly in this book, she talks about her own kind of journey with money and working with others. And I've also seen for myself, it's almost like something that most of us tend to see as a kind of, because everyone's agreeing on it, it's a kind of, it's a tool for self-concern. It's a tool for, um, that's seen in terms of accumulating and depleting and kind of the the self-concern wants to watch that. And it can shift from that being seen as an instrument of expressing self-concern or the concern for just a small group of people around us, our family or whatever it is, to something that expresses not just that but a devotion to all life. It's, it's moved. The very same thing, the very same tool or instrument has moved from, from this to something much, much wider, much different. And an instrument then that expresses love that expresses an, a deep affirmation of life and the, and the dignity of all, all, all beings. And in a way, is the, the instrument through which and, and, and by which we, we share with life, with others, with the world, our, our deepest aspirations, our deepest dreams, which turn out not just to be about me. If we really go deep in this question that I introduced in, in the opening talk, it turns out not just to be about me. And so, in her words, when that same instrument is aligned with her soul, with, when it's aligned with soul, you could speak different language, when it's aligned with soul, that brings, that realignment actually brings a sense of prosperity and joy and sufficiency. And not related to any quantity of amount that I have or money in the bank or whatever. And in this way, used that way, expressed that way, directed that way, Money, instead of fragmenting and causing divisions between self and other and divisions in society and divisions globally, uh, it becomes something that connects, has the capacity to connect. Whole, whole different relationship. So this is a practice. This is a shift in view that I'm describing. But in a way, to go say something I've already said in different words, practice is practicing shifts in view. 
Practice is practicing shifts in view. Changing the view, not just once, but again, because it will keep going back to the default. It will keep going back to the old ways of seeing. And so we change it, and we change it, and we change it, until that freer view, the new view, the deeper view, the more uh, compassionate view is consolidated, is deepened in the same place. And then in turn that can lead to perhaps an even deeper one. So it's a practice. This is a practice I'm talking about. I don't think that's easy. I, I definitely know it's possible, but I don't think it's easy. Uh, but as all things, everything good in practice feeds everything else good in practice. So that kind of shift in attitude with something like money is helped by loving-kindness, is helped by uh, depth of meditation, is helped by joy, is helped by insight, and it also helps those things. Again, the causality feeds, goes both ways. So, getting back to security in a more general sense, have you noticed, have you noticed that oftentimes what we look to for security, what we build up <coughs> to try for security, oftentimes, or perhaps even always, becomes a source of worry instead. What we try and build up as security actually becomes a source of worry instead. And In addition to that, if there's no wisdom or if there's not enough wisdom in the search for security, then we end up with things like the financial crisis. And we end up with things like climate change that may spiral out of our control. So is there such a thing as a wise search for security? A wise search for groundedness in life? Oftentimes in the Dharma we hear that there isn't. I, for me, the, the Buddha was very clear that there is a wise search for security. Um, some, sometimes we hear in the Dharma, nothing's in your control, it's all out of control, so just kind of go with the flow. I mean, I'm ne- the Buddha didn't say that, but uh, it also doesn't seem to me to be true that nothing's in my control. At the moment I'm, you know, thinking quite carefully about which words to choose at such some level of the being. I can move my arm... Etc. Something might happen that stops me being able to move my arm, and eventually I won't be able to move my arm. But basically, there's a degree of control, and to, to say that I don't have any is, is not realistic. And I can use that control, and inner control as well, for good, and to, to perhaps cultivate something that's helpful. So going with the flow is a, is a little bit not really full as, as a spiritual ideal. I saw a poster, it said, only dead fish go with the flow. That's quite good. So what is it to search for security? What's a skillful, a wise search for security? Well, it depends on a couple of things. In what? In what am I looking for security? Where am I searching for it? And the place the Buddha said it's good to search for security is in the qualities of heart. So loving kindness, compassion, generosity, equanimity, mindfulness, interest, uh, depth of meditation, etc., etc., all these lists, they, it's not that they remain constant as states of mind, it's more that they become habits of being that become more and more accessible. And we take them with us, whatever happens and wherever we go. 
There could be a complete financial collapse. There could be this, there could be that. If I have developed those as streams of the being, as habitual streams of the being, that's my inner resources. And that's a security for me. And it's not that it doesn't have waves in it, but that will become more and more a sense of something I can depend on inside. I can depend on a certain amount of equanimity, etc. A certain amount of kindness. But also the question in terms of a wise search for security is, where is that whole search coming from? Because maybe, maybe the self can't actually be made secure, ultimately speaking. So oftentimes we are searching for security, as I said right at the beginning, from a sense of self, from the self-view. But there's, there's a problem here, because self, for instance, goes with other, as I said at the beginning, self and other go as a, as a, a duality, a pairing. And so other, very often the search, it, it becomes what will they think of me? And then that we invest that, because it goes with self, self and other, and what will they think of me goes together, then we invest that with our search. And we want others to think a certain way of us. And we seek for security in that. And that's where the fame, money, power, etc. come in. Or we search for security kind of in the self-view. And as... It's a strange thing with human beings. We're kind of addicted, or delusion, you could say, is addicted to defining the self somehow. I am like this, I am that, and maybe we want to present it to others, but also to ourself. Someone a few weeks ago in an interview said, she realized, she said, I can never be, I realized I can never be the idea or the fantasy that I have of myself whether that is a good fantasy or a bad fantasy, I can never be that. It's impossible. It's quite insightful. That's impossible. Or sometimes we look for, what's the real self? Where's the real self? Who's the real me? And we look at ourselves in different situations and we see, well, I keep changing and maybe that's dishonest. Maybe, um, you know, what's the real me in there? But how I am in a situation is a dependent arising. So I don't know if you notice this. I, I notice for myself, I have different humor with different friends. And so with, with some friends, I have a sort of very silly humor. With others, I have a, um, a very sort of, um, I don't know, fast witty thing. With others, it's a kind of affectionate teasing. With others, it's just a kind of bizarre, zany, I don't know... Also, teaching style is very interesting. It's very, it's very interesting giving, giving talks because it looks like I'm the one giving the talk. But actually, we're all giving the talk. What, what I say, you know, I have some lines here and just, I mean, a few words. What I say d- depends on what you're giving me or what I'm perceiving you're giving me. In, in a way, it, it's happening together. So the style of the teaching is, is a dependent arising. You know, I think I told you I lived in America for 15 years. Most of that time I was a jazz musician. And uh, I talked very differently then. <laughs> There's a whole subculture kind of language that it just doesn't come out of my mouth now in these conditions. And probably if I was back in that environment, it would start. Now, was it that I was afraid of being perceived as some kind of English twit or something over there? No. Is it that I'm repressing you know, something else here for, out of fear? No, it's a dependent arising. It just comes out of the conditions.
So there's no problem in that. We say, well, I'm looking for something authentic. Authentic is an interesting word, but it's rather like, rather than looking for the authentic self, it's rather, is what's happening now coming out of fear or not? That's the more important question. And am I changing, adapting myself because I'm afraid or I'm repressing something out of fear? So I said the other day, really, really important practice to see what gets expressed, what action arises or non-action or speech or, or how I appear depends on the web of conditions that are there. And to see this is a practice. We need to do it over and over and over. Because, I, like I said the other day, I'm aware of saying it doesn't sound like whoopee. But that right there, seeing that over and over is tremendous freedom. It's a shift in perspective. And again, we're practicing shifts in view. Practicing shifts in view. So, have you noticed in a relationship dynamic, it could be with a partner or an ex-partner, if you remember back, or a friend, or an authority figure, or a teacher, or a therapist. What comes out depends on what you feel like you're getting from them, what's being put on you. You might feel that you're being put under pressure. You might feel like you're being scrutinized. You might feel like you're being put in a box. You might feel like there are demands being put on you. When there's a demand, pressure, certain situation, it builds a kind of intensity and maybe a fear, and then something comes out dependent on that. And then we say, and I looked at myself in relationship, I've got this problem, or I'm like this, I'm stuck with this. And actually it's a dependent arising. So whatever we are in, in life, is a whatever we have come to be, is also a dependent arising. There's no such thing as the self-made man or woman. It's, it's it dependent, you know, materialistically self-made. It depends on having a certain amount of capital, for instance, or property that then rises in value at the times when there was interest and all that stuff. teacher, student, it's just an agreement we relate, we uh, agree to enter into a certain relationship. So, you know, there's nothing inherently here that's teacher and inherently there that's student. In this case, you know, me, me speak and, and you, you shush. Me Tarzan, you... <laughs> Being somebody, it takes conditions, it takes conditions. Without that, it, it's dependent on conditions. On retreat, the beautiful thing about developing mindfulness and, and uh, keeping that sort of continuity of mindfulness go- going is that what happens, and you, I'm sure you've noticed this already at times, the story subsides, maybe just a little bit, maybe a lot at times. And with the story subsiding, the sense of self also quietens, softens, opens out, gets lighter. And we begin through that, through going in and out of that, to question our belief in the story, in the story of ourself and who I am. So retreating a while ago, I had a dream. 
uh, a while before she told me, and uh, I was struck by it, and I asked her if I could use it, and she wrote it down both for herself and for me to use. And this is the dream. She said, I was involved in some way with a court case and was being required to account for how I used my time. I started to give an account of my current life at great length, the things I do, the people I know and spend time with, hobbies, interests, family commitments, jobs, activities, etc., etc. It went on and on, giving an enormous amount of detail. As I recall the dream now, I'm aware there was an underlying sense of wanting to convince others. I was speaking with a fair amount of conviction and certainty. Finally, I stopped and sat down, aware suddenly of a deep weariness. Then I heard myself say, but none of this is true. There was a stunning silence. Everything disappeared. Everything disappeared. My whole life vanished in one instant. It's like I sat in the shock waves of that statement. The space around me was white and empty and full of something I still can't quite articulate. The intensity of the experience woke me up much as you'd wake from a bad dream because you can't tolerate the fear anymore. Only I wasn't afraid, just profoundly shaken, disturbed deeply on every level. I can still feel the reverberations of it in my body. That was actually weeks or even months later, I think. The story is a way we solidify the self in time in the past. We solidify the self in time in the past through the story. And the self will, in its way that it is, it will tend to want to see in terms of the story. So the story feeds the self and the self feeds the story. Again, both ways. Security is a way that the self can tend to see the future. So we see the past in terms of story, we see the future in terms of security or not. And in so doing, it solidifies itself. It solidifies itself. It also, unfortunately, solidifies a lot of other stuff. It solidifies a sense of future by thinking about the future. But even having the notion of security brings with it the notion of insecurity. And the notions of fear and security and insecurity, sorry, of future and security and insecurity bring with them fear. So it's almost like it's a game you can't win. The, the very notions themselves bring with them what will, what will undermine them. Do, do you understand? Are you still there? <laughs> do you understand? So when we practice mindfulness and we talk a lot about being in the now, one of the things that does is it just sort of chops off the past and the future and the way that the self gets built up so that there's to a degree, to a degree there's less self being built up because it's not being built up so much in time. But actually there's still a level of self being built up and I'll, I'll get to this. But what we see with practice and with, with inquiry into all this is that the sense of self is, again, it's a dependent arising. The very sense of self is a dependent arising. So you may have noticed, and I think some people have already noticed, even on this retreat, just a few days, 
the more reactivity there is, the more something is a problem or I'm tussling with something or something is a big deal, the more reactivity, the more the sense of self, the more built up it is, the more solid it is, the more real, the more bloated. Partly, doing these practices with the big awareness, what we're really practicing, and we're practicing a lot of things through that expansive awareness, one of the things we're practicing is non-reactivity. So when I say in the guided meditations, let it go because everything's impermanent or it all belongs to the space or it's just an impression in awareness or whatever. It's, that's doing a lot of things, but partly what it's doing is it's encouraging a non-reactivity through letting go. And then as one will see, if one pursues that kind of practice and some people are discovering already, with the lessening of reactivity, there's a lessening in the sense of self sometimes quite uh, strikingly and extraordinarily, much less self, because there's much less reactivity. And so it's possible in in, in the beauty of of the meditative life and in the movement of that, that we experience at times the personality going quiet, the personality just being fading. It's just not that present in our experience. We can't really find any much personality going on. And we move in in meditation, in dedication to meditation. One moves many times. And if we see this enough, the question is, what's real here? What's the real me? Am I vast awareness? Am I just a kind of, uh, you know, absence of personality? Am I personality? Am I a lot of personality? Am I a little, you know, what's real? Personality is a dependent arising and it's built. It's built. It's fabricated. Let's, let's take this apart even more. Let's unpack it, uh, untangle it a bit more. The self-view gets built partly, partly at a certain level. At a certain level, I'm talking about. Personality level, really. The self-view gets built on selected memories. In you know, countless possible memories in my life, Certain ones are selected out of many, many more that are overlooked or or forgotten. Why is it that some are remembered? And what happens with that? So why is it? Well, partly we remember some dependent on the mood in the present. If I feel lonely right now, for instance, as an example, if I feel lonely, I tend to look at the past and, and go, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. And again, dot to dot, I'm lonely. I've always been lonely. I'm all, I will always be alone. It gets stitched together. Dependent on the mood in the present, we will find different things in the past. But another piece here, so there's the mood in the present, there's also the intensity of the experience that we might be remembering. So, unfortunately, difficult emotions for most people are their most intense experiences. Unfortunately, that's partly what we're doing in meditation, is kind of reversing that, partly. An intense experience makes more of an impression in consciousness, it makes a more, more of a dent there, and so we'll tend to get remembered. But also we remember stuff kind of influenced culturally uh, as to what is significant. So again, one, one might... Um, Again, it's like with romantic love, taking the idea of loneliness. And that gets such hype, and it's like you've got, you, you see the adverts and the Hollywood films, and, and this whole 
the whole hype, and if one isn't in a relationship, then one perceives it a certain way. What gets given significance to remember and what gets given significance in the present moment can sometimes just be culturally determined. And then what happens? These factors, the mood in the present, the intensity of the experience in the past, the cultural factors of what's significant or not significant, and other factors, all get shoved together. A self-view arises dependent on that. And then the self-view that's formed this way then becomes the lens, the very lens through which we look at and interpret and feel present moment experience. Do you see that? So I'm looking at current experience that way, I'm feeling it that way, I'm interpreting it that way, I'm singling things out that way. If I feel I'm a loser, then I, I, the mind almost goes, where's the things that show I'm a loser? Oh yeah, I didn't do that. Oh yeah, I've failed at that. Oh yeah. It's singling out events dependent on the selfie because those are the goggles we have on. It's giving significance again to certain events, certain impressions in awareness. Because that's, that, that self-view is the very lens. And again, it's remembering something, some things over others. All, all that reinforces the self-view. Do, do you see? It's, it's reinforcing the self-view and the whole process. And so it snowballs. And again, that's what we call samsara. At fairly gross level even. Now actually, in terms of self-view, we are always seeing the self and the world and the experience somehow. There's always a self-view there of some kind or another. Okay. Now this isn't something where we tend to be conscious of or we tend to give much attention to. And sometimes uh, a lot of meditators think, oh, there was no self there or something. But actually even... In, oh, how do I say... Even when we feel like we're just being, there's still a self-view there. There's a view of self. It might be more quiet, more subtle, more less problematic. There's still a view of self, of world, of time. Are we conscious of how we are seeing the self at any time? How, what the self-view is? Or is that kind of underneath the radar? Because oftentimes it is underneath where we're not actually conscious of what we're bringing into the moment in terms of the self-view and the way we're viewing things. But everything hinges on that. Everything hinges on that. How we are seeing things. And that's why I go back to this. Insight meditation is learning to see things differently in a way that brings freedom. And learning to change the view and consolidate that view and practice that view. But if I'm always seeing the self in a certain way, maybe... It's good to know which ways of seeing the self lead to freedom or lead in the direction of freedom and which don't. That becomes quite an important question. And it may be, for instance, um, that seeing myself uh, in some traditions, we can't really do it in the West because of this inner critic that I talked about the other night, but seeing oneself as a warrior, I mean a W-A-R-R-I-O-R, not a, not a warrior, uh, <laughs> unfortunately too many people do um, seeing oneself as a warrior spiritually seeing oneself as a hero, a heroine can actually be very helpful 
if if it doesn't feed into the inner critic, it's a skillful self view, an immensely skilled immensely skillful self view. If it if if one feels that it's helpful, or to see oneself as a bodhisattva. And at the same time, any self view, any self view to any degree will also be a prison and is also something that's fabricated, is not ultimately true. So Dharmically speaking, in terms of the path, it's not that we're tr- it's not it's not that we're trying to get rid of the self. That's not the project as far as Buddha Dharma is concerned. We're not trying to get rid of the self. What we want, what we're moving towards, is an understanding deeper and deeper uh, that the self, its nature, we say, is empty. It's fabricated. It's something that's built in the same way that I describe the personality as built. It's, it's a fabrication, it's a dependent arising. So it's empty, but that still means that at times it's totally appropriate to see in terms of the self, to talk in terms of the self, to communicate in terms of the self. At times it's the most helpful mode, way of communicating and relating to another. At other times all it's doing is bringing suffering to some degree or another. So it becomes, we see that it's empty, it becomes something that we can pick up and put down. It's okay, but it's kind of easy to say. It's easy, we hear talks and we read books and and it sounds nice. And it's easy to say, ah, the self is the problem. Uh, There is no self, it's just an illusion, etc. or something like that. But the habit of feeling the self and conceiving it to be real, uh, feeling it as real, intuitively sensing it to be something real, is so deeply ingrained, so deeply wrapped up in consciousness that we can't just kind of brush it off with, oh yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's an illusion or it doesn't really exist. That's too facile, it's too, it's too easy. So it's totally wrapped up in the way, the very fabric of the way we feel about life at a very deep level. And that needs practice. Practice, again, I repeat, going, going, breaking that view. So we deliberately break views in practice and we shift into more open views, deliberately. Some of this came up in a group today. Sometimes we think of insight practice as sort of just being mindful and waiting and an insight will visit us and that's great but there's that's that's one I'm not saying that doesn't exist but in addition there's a mode where one actually is deliberately seeking to crack open a certain view in a certain way and open to something else practicing a shift in view and consolidating it and deepening it and letting it really take root in the heart and change the very way we feel about life and relate to life and death over time as it gets deepened and consolidated. And that takes repetition, repetition. We need to repeatedly break this view, repeatedly shift out of the view. And that's why I was saying seeing in terms of the webs of conditions, seeing in these different ways over and over and over. So as I said, there's always a self-view and in a way we could speak and it's quite skillful to speak perhaps about a continuum or levels of self-view. So we can talk, as much of the talk tonight talked about a kind of uh, psychological or personality view of self. 
and how we get kind of entangled in that and identified with that. And seeing that what gets expressed is a dependent arising. What is seen as the personality is actually dependent arising. It's not really who we are. It doesn't really have that inherent existence. But in a way there's other levels too. Just kind of deeper, uh, quieter you could say than the personality view. Just the view of the self as body and mind. And even more than that. And I'll I'll get to this uh, tomorrow. But in terms of the personality self, as I said, which is real if I kind of see the whole spectrum there? I see personality, I see it fade, I see how it's built and fabricated, how actually it's built out of habits. And I also see that those habits can kind of be disempowered and it can be built in a different way. Seeing that, seeing this movement in the the sort of appearance and disappearance of the personality, the rise and fall of the personality self, that becomes, it becomes a doorway, uh, a doorway to a whole different sense, a whole different sense of actually even life and existence. Freer, lighter, more expansive. And It's not that it's an end point, uh, but it's an opening. You could say it's a beginning, it's an opening into something. So let's have a little quiet time together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.